and welcome to a very special edition in the NRI podcast series, a chat with NRI's brand new director, Professor Cheryl Hendricks. Now, Cheryl, thank you very much for joining me. And on behalf of everyone, I'd like to say welcome to NRI. Thank you ever so much. And thank you for this wonderful opportunity to engage with you and the staff before I arrive. It's an absolute pleasure. I just want to ask you, what was it that made you apply for the job at NRI? What was it that, that caught your eye? Were you were you actively job hunting or did it just sort of pop up as a great opportunity? <laughs> Last year, I found myself at a crossroad in my career. So I was about to end a four-year term in a management position at the University of Pretoria. And having recently had my national research rating upgraded, I was looking and deciding what I should do for the future, the next phase of my career. Um, And so I had sort of been browsing, but not very seriously, (laughs) but um, was alerted by the recruiting agency for this particular um, position. So, yes, I was because my children are now adults, I have much more freedom to look for an international position. So I was very excited to see the opportunity and even more delighted to have the opportunity to join NRI. And had you ever heard of NRI before you saw the job advert? Were you aware of what we do and and the work that we carry out? No, but I I do know a number of people's work linked to NRI, but I hadn't really put the two together. Let's talk a little bit about that interview process, because, of course, you know, NRI colleagues, we were sort of stakeholders and we we watched your presentation. Um, How how was it for you? Was it very nerve wracking or was it, you know, as as interviews go, was it a pleasant experience? Well, it was tough. (laughs) It was a very novel experience. Um, So I had had two interviews with the recruitment agency, uh, fairly extended conversations with them prior to um, the the formal uh, process with the NRI and university staff. Uh, But yeah, it was a grueling four-hour process with the university with quite diverse skills being tested. So yes, it was... It was nerve-wracking, but of course, it's always wonderful to talk about the things that you really enjoy. So, it was a, a bit of a a bittersweet, but <laughs> yeah, interesting process. Yes, and it must have been great when you found out you got the job. Did you go out and celebrate that night? Well, <laughs> Professor Peter Griffiths phoned me at about twenty to eight um, the evening of the interview, so it was a little too late. But yes, I, I was really elated. <laughs> Your specialist area is food security, something we do a lot of at NRI. What would you say living and working in South Africa has taught you personally about this area of expertise? Oh, loads. (laughs) I've really learned a lot um, through my life in South Africa, my research in South Africa, um, and the transitions that the the South African society has gone through. So from the transition out of apartheid um, with lots of unlearning required um, to adjust to um, overcoming social conditioning that was quite quite distinct and quite rigid in the former um, the former era and then having to embrace deliberate um, opportunities to reverse exclusion and to make society far more inclusive culturally sensitive and on a daily basis um, thinking about how you know your your 
your approach to life, your opinions, um, the ingrained training that you have had to undo in the process. Yeah, so there are many, many um, different lessons. I think being part of that has led to greater resilience and resourcefulness um, that particularly comes maybe not only from South Africa, but from living in a country um, with many shortages. Um, and so, for example, the moment we have six to eight hours of no power um, and decades of austerity measures. So, you know, making do with what you have and what, what little resources you have um, really is something that comes stems from my South African experience. But the people that I've researched with and the communities, especially the poorest communities in South Africa, and working with a diverse range of students, particularly from disadvantaged backgrounds, has led to a lot of um, re reflection and understanding. They've given me many insights as to what daily life is like for those um, who are disadvantaged. Uh, and that has, has informed the research that I have been um, engaged in. So it has helped me uh, to appreciate some of the need for practical solutions to everyday challenges. So it can't be lofty academic ideas um, and also how to uh, communicate those um, to people in a way that is understood at a community level or to policy uh, makers. But I also have really cherished the privilege of being able to be a voice in influential platforms, um, bringing those, those um, voices from the field and from um, the poorer communities to international discussions. So, yes, a rich experience. <laughs> And food security and hunger often get mentioned in the same breath. Are they the same thing? <laughs> no. <laughs> hunger is the extreme of food security. So it is, it is one of the, the more extreme levels of food insecurity. But yes, they're often used interchangeably. Do you think you've made an impact um, during your time in South Africa? And if so, could you tell us how? I do think so, yes. I've worked very closely um, with rural communities in particular and with policymakers in South Africa. So I've had the privilege of being able to conduct consultative conversations across the country uh, to inform policy development. And we've seen many of the policies that um, I have been involved in and have led the consultation and design of being implemented. Um, so, for example, I was the lead person drafting the National Food Security and Nutrition Plan for the country, which is just undergoing a five-year review now. So, yes, um, through using different media, uh, we try very hard um, through my research group to make sure we we are putting research um, um, the, the solutions of research into the domain of policymakers, um, and then also uh, influencing the way in which food security policy is measured and monitored in South Africa, so that we have some idea of what is really happening on the ground. Can you remember when and where your passion for food systems and security actually began? You know, did it did it start when you were very young, or was it something that came to you when you were a, an adult? <laughs> I've always been sensitive to uh, the context in which we live in South Africa. Um, 
I went to a school with some of South Africa's poorest white um, kids from a, a very unique white township um, in South Africa. It was one of the few uh, with very specific programs targeted by the government um, for for, targeted to, to addressing the, the issue that was called the poor white problem. Um, and that made me very sensitive to the kids who were in my class um, and, under, and sympathy and empathy for what they were going through. But it was really my PhD research that led me into the field of food security. So I was researching agricultural growth linkages um, in a rural community in South Africa and uh, realized from the literature that I was reading that this was a really wonderful confluence um, of bringing my nutrition, food science, um, and consumer behavior theory together, along with agricultural economics, which is what I did my PhD in. Um, and I could see from the work that I did under my in my PhD that this was a gap that could be filled by somebody who had a broader understanding of how these issues come together and um, how complex the, the situation was. So I was invited at the end of my PhD to present some of the work at a conference in Zambia, uh, in fact, an animal science conference, the Zambian, um, sorry, animals, yes, Zambian animal science conference. And coming back from that, I decided that was what I was going to make my future career. Uh, and so, yeah, I started a transdisciplinary program to bring thinkers together to try and address some of the challenges. So, yeah, I've never looked back. Food security has taken me around the world <laughs> and given me so many opportunities, open doors, and in fact, also the, the door to come to NRI. And have you travelled very widely around, around the African continent? Yes. <laughs> I've been to more than half of the African countries. Yeah. Uh, Pre-COVID, I was traveling at least once a month, um, probably every second month to one African country meeting. So I've been very deeply involved in the African Union's agenda on food security and leading the policy development um, and that guides the, the country's frameworks for that. Yes. So, yes, a wonderful opportunities. And talking of COVID, what, what kind of impact did the pandemic have on, on you and your your working life as well as your sort of personal life? Because obviously it affected people in very different ways. I'm just curious about your own experience of the last two years. It was very tough. As I said, I had a very tough assignment to pull off at the university, which required considerable negotiation and um, staff engagement, which was really challenged by um, having to work online and not having direct contact with colleagues to, to um, manage a, a, change, a change process. Um, it was isolated in many ways, but at the same time, I was involved in the Food Systems Summit, uh, and the world just opened up through <laughs> through Zoom meetings, and uh, yeah, so I, I would never have been involved in so much of the Food Systems Summit if I had to travel at least nine hours or fly at least nine hours to get to a meeting. So yes, the opportunities um, around the digital platforms for COVID really did help me to get my 
roll up my sleeves and really um, get involved in the global agenda on a on a weekly basis, which to me was just such an amazing opportunity to be deep thinking deeply about really critical issues um, on a continual basis. So typically in, in academia, you have seasons um, where you're either teaching or you're researching or the admin starts to roll out. Um, but that uh, continual engagement and because it was quick and sharp, you were able to get your, your, your pieces in every, every week to engage in that global process. COVID sort of took a lot away from us, but it actually gave us an awful lot of different opportunities and different ways of working. And I don't know what it's like in South Africa, but I know here in the UK, we've had to make a huge readjustment as to how we work now, because so many different possibilities are there. And I think we're still going through this period of readjustment. Is, Is it the same in South Africa? Yes, uh, South African um, society has dropped all COVID measures. So since August, um, the University of Pretoria has been back um, on campus with face-to-face undergraduate training. Um, but post uh, our specific postgraduate program runs across eight African universities. So we were able to provide continuity, for example, for University of Makerere, which was closed for 18 months, we were able to teach their students online and so allow them to continue their education at a, in a really difficult time. But yeah, I think the, the big, there's still change, but I think what we have to do is to reflect on the brilliance and the innovations that came through that process and make sure that we, we keep what is treasured and what really worked um, and integrate that into, into the future so that we don't lose um, the momentum and, and the opportunities. I do think that there are just so many opportunities in the developing world uh, that can benefit from those um, digital platforms. So what, what were you like when you were at school? I'll take you right back now to young Cheryl, little Cheryl. Were you very academic? Did you enjoy your schoolwork? Um, or was it a love um, of academia that sort of came as you as you progressed through your school years and on to university <laughs> I was always a very serious child probably too serious <laughs> um, and always incredibly curious my mother always told stories of how many questions I asked that some of which she was not able to answer particularly about how society works and and doesn't work um, yeah so I didn't really plan an academic career um, I had the opportunity of living in a university town, um, so I was able to to study um, and live at home, which was otherwise would not have been possible to get a university education. Yeah, so it was it was really just doors open for me to enter into a academic career straight after I had finished my um, honors degree. Um, it, somebody resigned and they needed somebody urgently, so that's how it started. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't a planned element, but once I was there and got involved in the research side, I knew this was where I wanted to be. So the curiosity could be solved, <laughs> or at least a little bit of satisfaction could come from unearthing the way in which society works and understand, getting the insight as to um, how the pieces fit together and why people behave in the way that they do and why the directions um, of development happen as they have. 
one of the papers that you've written that I, I was looking at the other day, um, you talk about the need for clarity when using terminology. Uh, I think you said something like disputes over terminology distract from the need for urgent action. And that was a phrase that resonated um, with me. What did you mean by that phrase? I'm delighted that you picked that one up because it's one of the things that's very close to my heart and very core to my work. Um, I think it's really, really important um, that we do define academic terminology. Uh, terminology is continuously changing. And I think particularly for those of us who are English first language speakers, um, the language develops um, very quickly. And you can see that um, across different languages, sometimes the, the language terminology doesn't keep pace with what's happening um, in the terminology developments. Um, and so I think it's, unless you're really at the forefront of new developments in all the fields that intersect with the domains that we work in, uh, we really don't keep up to date with the latest innuendos and the differentiations in um, the terminology. Uh, and so I think it's of utmost importance to make sure that at the start of a conversation uh, or the start of a paper, that your audience or the people around the table in a discussion are all talking about the same thing. Uh, so I've seen it when we're discussing food security. It really depends on what era you stopped learning about the, the concept as to where your mind frame is. And so some people still think of food security as production only, the sort of 1970s, early 80s definition, and aren't aware that the four element definition of the Rome food security definition from 2009 was updated in 2013. And then in 2020, two more elements were added. So there are actually now six elements. You find many papers still talk about the four elements of food security. And lately I've seen a great deal of confusion um, in global discussions um, between food security and food systems and people use the terms interchangeably. So yes, I really do believe the terminology is crucial uh, for sound conversations, so that we're not talking past each other, that we're actually advancing the conversation. And of course, it's critical for research. Uh, of course, the terminology around food security determines how you measure it. So my students, I think, get quite crazy when I continually ask, you know, how is food security measured? So the levels of food insecurity are such and such for this country, but how were they measured? Because it's not comparable if you don't know the actual measures. So yeah, terminology is really crucial. So it's not just terminology, is it? It's also clarity of thought and action. And it's not just having the, the good work, it's how you communicate that, isn't it? Communicating that to, to your, your peers, your colleagues, the rest of the world. How important is that, in your opinion? Vital. Absolutely vital. It, it really is so important that we get to explain the work in any domain, not just food security, that we are working um, in um, to make sure that society can benefit from the work that we do. Um, because many of the work, um, much of the work that NRI does is very practical. Um, and so it's really important that the people who can use it on the ground are able to access um, the ideas. And communicated also allows you for a two-way flow of conversation. 
and we've we've had some conversations with rural communities to explain our interpretation of data that we acquired from the community. Um, and we we had our ideas from theory as to how we could explain some of the controversies and some of the, the sort of conflicting results that we that we got from the work. But when you sit around with a community group, you just get so much more insight that the everyday practicalities um, and cultural nuances that you would never get from an academic journal or from sitting at your desk. So yeah, we through communicating, we learn um, from, from the people around us as well. You're moving yourself and I assume members of your family halfway across the world to come and work with us at NRI. And we are very grateful for that. <laughs> what are you most looking forward to about starting um, on the 1st of March at NRI? So, yes, it is a, a very new <laughs> a new environment that I will be living in. I will be moving on my own and leaving my two adult sons um, in South Africa. So, yes, I will miss them dearly. <laughs> I miss my colleagues, my family and my friends. But the thing I miss most about South Africa is the year-round sunshine. So... Yeah, that's that's going to be something to adjust to. <laughs> are you are you prepared for our obsession with the weather here in England? <laughs> yeah. I've been I have been following years, years. Yeah, but I think I have to, I still have a lot to learn, particularly <laughs> around how to deal with the cold. <laughs> you know, you can picture what it's like if if you tell me it's going to be 25 to 35 degrees, I can picture what I need to wear. Yeah. It's a totally different thing when I look at the weather and I see it's something like 8 to 11 degrees. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you might get a few days when it's like 25, 30 degrees <laughs> and then we'll moan about it because it's too hot. You know, we're never happy with the weather. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but have you have you been to the UK a lot in your in your life? I have travelled there for work before, yes, but not for a while. Okay. So we're a very collaborative bunch at NRI. So I've got a few questions that other people would like me to ask you, if that's okay. Um, do you have a game plan for when you start? Or are you going to work it out as you go along? How are you going to approach taking over at NRI? Yeah, so the first thing is to listen. I'm very keen to hear what people's aspirations and expectations are um, and to understand who's on the team, what each person does, and to understand the context. I've done a little bit of reading um, in preparation for the interviews in particular from the newsletters, from the web posts, um, but uh, some of some of them um, are not the most current work because most of the, the website reports on what has been done. So there's a lot I think to learn about what people are currently doing and what people are embarking on. Um, so to me, the most important thing is listening first. Um, I, yes, I do have a do have a game plan um, in terms of looking at once we understand that context of what are the things that can help take NRI to the next level. Um, and so I'm very keen to engage with the different teams to understand what those opportunities are um, and what would work practically. Um, are there some real blue sky crazy ideas that perhaps can be pursued? Where are the gaps? 
where are the strategic um, opportunities. Um, the world is changing very fast in this domain and development is unfolding at a pace that I doubt we've seen before. Um, so the future is a little uncertain in terms of global developments as well. So yeah, finding the voice and the positioning of NRI in the future is really what I will be looking for um, in terms of hearing what people say, reflecting on what people say, um, and then also engaging with stakeholders and the broader community um, to understand what the lie of the land is and, and what, what could be the future characteristics and um, uh, strategic positioning of NRI. So the ultimate goal would be to develop a collective strategy and an action plan that um, people can work actively towards. Sounds good. Um, another question here. What makes you happy in life? Ah. <laughs> so what really makes me happy is, is working on something that has practical value and influence in the world. Um, so to be to collaboratively co collaboratively solve um, some complex problem is really what I find challenging but incredibly satisfying. So I've had some amazing opportunities in my life to have a range of people from different disciplines sitting around the table and exploring each other's knowledge um, and watching people's faces light up as they realize the value of their own um, research and their own understanding in the context of a more complex um, issue. So, um, yeah, facilitating that those kind of processes are to me the most satisfying part of the work that I've done in the past. Um, and those are kind of opportunities that I will be looking out for as well. It sounds to me as if your management style is very much um, looking at the strength that you've got around you and enabling people, enabling your team to perform to the best of their abilities. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The team is the most important thing. So when the team succeeds, everybody succeeds. Um, so, yeah. And, and there obviously will be different teams for different elements, um, and so it won't be that everybody works on the same thing. Um, but yeah, definitely, uh, I, I pride myself in being a collaborative, um, facilitatory um, leader um, and trying to find how to put people's passion um, and strengths to use to as part of, of the team. Now, we've talked about what makes you happy. Um, can you give me an example of something in life that makes you angry or irritated? <laughs> ah. <laughs> um, when it comes to students, I could think of a very long list. But <laughs> 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 I guess not learning from mistakes is probably what frustrates me the most, um, especially if I think about global development and how we we make the same mistakes over and over again without learning. Um, and I guess that's part of my strategy as well as uh, you don't start with a blank slate. You start with a history. You start with experience. Um, people have experimented with things before that worked and that didn't work. Um, it doesn't mean that the, if they didn't work in the past, they won't work in the future because as the team dynamics change, as the context changes, we can experiment with those kind of things again. 
But yeah, that to me is the most frustrating. Um, in policy discussions, for example, when policymakers throw up their hands and say, well, we've done all that before, or um, we've got nothing new to learn from, from the experience, that is really, for me, frustrating. As I believe we, we learn all the time. We learn from every engagement, from every experience. And my final question for you is what South African food or foods will you miss the most when you move to the UK? Oh, <laughs> that's a tricky one because I think many of the foods that we thoroughly enjoy are part of global culture. So <laughs> one of the things I missed most when I moved um, from KwaZulu-Natal to Gauteng was um, curry um, and the, the various different, we have a whole range across different cultures in South Africa of curries influenced by people who came from the east of India in the 1950s. Um, but I do understand that there are many um, opportunity, there are many places in, in the UK where you can buy a good curry too. So maybe I won't be without some of the home comforts. <laughs> Hopefully you'll be able to have a very good curry as soon as you arrive and keep on having good curries because that is something we have a lot of, <laughs> thankfully, here in the UK. <laughs> so Cheryl, those are all my questions. Is there anything you'd like to say to your new NRI colleagues that I haven't already asked you about or any message you'd like to uh, leave us with? No, just that I'm extremely excited about working with the team and really looking forward to getting to know everybody um, and, and developing this collaborative strategy for moving forward. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much, Cheryl Hendricks. Professor Cheryl Hendricks, thank you so much for joining me on this special NRI podcast.